I feel like true crime now is really opening up those conversations about not just mental health, but domestic abuse and just making it less stigmatized in a way that I'm hoping, I'm very, very hopeful that these conversations will lead to progress and change so that we don't have to keep making these true crime podcasts and things that we can have these issues addressed and possibly prevented in some way. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Rebel EM. Rebel EM stands for Rational Evidence-Based Evaluation of Literature in Emergency Medicine. We are a website that helps you keep up with the latest and the greatest, cut down knowledge translation time, and improve patient care. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. In today's episode, I'm speaking with a fellow podcaster, Joy Scaglione is the host of Bite-Sized Crime. This is a short-form podcast that focuses on lesser-known stories in the true crime world. Fact-based and extensively researched, Bite-Sized Crime is committed to giving voices to victims who may not otherwise have a chance to be heard. Outside of podcasting, Joy is a nationally certified school librarian with 20 years of experience in public and private education. Before we get started, I'd like to give a safety warning, listeners. We do talk about true crime, and we do talk about victims, murders, death by suicide, and other violent crimes. So if you're not up for it, please don't listen. Turn it off. You can always come back to it or not. Let's get to the conversation. I came up with a list of obvious places that perhaps you do your research and those that you shared on another podcast episode uh, on which you spoke. Uh, So there's Google. There's Reddit. There's newspaper archives, police reports, and news segments. Where else? That's a really good list. Um, I generally start my research with just a quick Google search. Um, Even though my podcast episodes are short, unfortunately, there are so many cases that have very little information. And so if I can't even get a few articles out of a basic Google search, then I know it's going to be either really frustrating for me or I'm just going to have to work a little bit harder. Um, And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes if I find something is really, really interesting, but there's not much out there on a quick search, then I might choose to do a deeper dive. Um, Sometimes I might shelve it for later and hope that I can find more, like, like maybe I have more time or maybe more will come out. Um, but Google's definitely where I start. Um, I will sometimes use sites like Reddit or Web Sleuths, not as primary sources. Um, they tend to be, I don't know if the word gossipy is what I want to use, but there's not always a lot of truth, um, in those threads. You can't take everything that people say as fact there, but it can often lead me in the right direction. So um, often I will use a Reddit thread or web sleuths to get more articles that maybe I wouldn't have found through a Google search. Um, And I always try to verify, like if someone says, oh, I heard somebody's cousin did X, Y, Z, I want to go and fact check that. I want to make sure if I can't find that corroborated anywhere, I'm just not going to use it. Um, like you said, police reports, court documents, those are the gold standard. If I can find a police report, because they're usually very fact-based, there's not a lot of exposition. There's usually not a lot of exposition on a police report. They usually are just giving you the facts. Um, and then court documents, especially because everything has to be in the exact language. They don't fluff it up. Um, but you can't always find that. So I do use that. Um, 
newspapers.com is a fantastic resource, well worth the subscription, <laughs> because you can get newspaper articles from decades past, and I can find really good stuff that may just not have a digital version yet. Um, so those are kind of my main go-tos. If I can find interviews with the family, that's also really wonderful as well, because you get a lot more information about who the victim was as a person and who who loved them and who they loved. Um, I find it really tragic sometimes when I'm looking into a victim and there's just not much about them. It's all about the actual, the crime or whatever happened to them. And it's, it's unfortunate when you can't even find a family member speaking about them. And that's generally not a result of the family. It's usually because their case hasn't gotten much attention. Um, and maybe reporters haven't reached out or whatever the reason may be. I shared with you that I basically binge listen to all your episodes. I think they're so well done and um, they just really hold my attention. And and what you just shared speaks a little bit to voice. Whose voice, whose case um, gets attention, uh, what's amplified, what's not. And the theme I would say in maybe all 58, 59 of your episodes, in general, uh, the true crime victim is a woman commonly a woman of color. And what I've seen based on your research and what you share is there has not necessarily been a lot of attention or a lot of energy or a lot of like there's the, a delay before like there's this, okay, we'll do a deep dive. We think this case, we think this person is worthy. That's very accurate. Um, you may have heard the phrase missing white woman syndrome. Um, I know it was bandied about recently with the Gabby Petito case. Um, but it's, it's a real phenomenon, I guess would be the word I would, I would use. Um, in the sense that generally in our 24 hour news cycle where everything is, you know, headline after headline and it's the attention grabbers, What's going to grab the public's attention is a beautiful, young, blonde, blue-eyed woman who something tragic has happened to. And the media will go after that because they know that they can get the clicks, they can get the views. Um, now, we, of course, want them to have that attention. You know, Gabby Petito deserved that attention, but there are thousands of other women Mainly women, of course, men as well, but mainly women from marginalized communities who do not get a fraction of that attention. And it's very, very hard to get that attention when maybe the families aren't able to spend the time or the money, you know, going on a press tour or, you know, you think, I'm using Gabby Petito as an example because she was a pretty big case recently in the last year or so. And her family was able to, you know, have many interviews and they were able to start a foundation in her name and do, they're doing wonderful things. And I do not take that away from them at all. But not every family has that privilege, has that ability to do those things. Um, and you just see that over and over and over again. A lot of it also in indigenous communities, that is a major, major issue. There are thousands of indigenous women who are missing or murdered, and nobody's ever heard of them. Um, 
And so they do not get that voice like we were talking about. Um, sometimes you just they just disappear and nobody knows or nobody says anything. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Episode 10 audience, by the way, uh, Joy covers Gabby Petito. And I listened to that a few times in preparation for our discussion today. And what's interesting is even in that case, when you recorded it, it was still sort of live. It's progressed in terms of um, more facts and, um, you know, it was a year ago now, it's hard to believe. Uh, but even then I was noting that um, when there was a a scuffle, an argument between Gabby and her fiance and police were involved, they made the determination that they was this, <laughs> this was a mental health crisis. It wasn't a situation of domestic violence. That I think was one of the big reasons why this case got so much attention. Um, in my opinion, the police made a bad call, but they made the call with the information that they had. Um, and, you know, that's been an even bigger conversation is how are police trained to recognize domestic abuse? How are they trained to deal with situations like that? Um, and, you know, I watched that body cam footage repeatedly. I mean, it's over an hour's worth. And I watched it many times and just kind of picking it apart and just trying to analyze Gabby's body language and her fiance's body language and even the police. And they were incredibly kind to her. And they, you know, on the surface, it seems like they really want to help. And I do believe that they did want to help. But unfortunately, because like you said, it was classified as a mental health crisis or, you know, unfortunately, there's not really a victim here in that sense. Like, let's just separate them. And unfortunately, as we know, what happened is that her fiance when they got back together after being separated, um, he ultimately killed her. And then, I mean, I won't go into the whole details of the case, um, but it's it's just absolutely tragic how many things could have happened that could have possibly prevented this. And not just in Gabby's case, in a lot of cases that I've covered, how a lot of times the system fails our young women or even family members with great intentions maybe didn't recognize the signs or um, weren't able to stop the momentum of something that was about to happen. Um, and so I feel like true crime now is really opening up those conversations about not just mental health, but domestic abuse and just making it less stigmatized in a way that I'm hoping, I'm very, very hopeful that these conversations will lead to progress and change so that we don't have to keep making these true crime podcasts and things that we can have these issues addressed and possibly prevented in some way. And it's not for nothing that it is October and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. The audience is now like, why does Joy do this? What is it? Is it voyeurism? Does she think it's funny? Like what is sort of what's behind all this? And I think I've heard you speak about what motivates you and your true intention and that, you know, there is criticism of true crime and all that we can see, all of these news clips, all of these horrible figurative and literal lynchings that happen today. What's your reaction to that? I think that is very true. Um, you know, as a true crime fan, um, I recognize that there are issues 
it can be incredibly problematic. And that's a conversation that needs to happen. And I believe it is starting to happen. Um, I think there are certainly people who are into true crime for the gratuitous violence, for the graphic details, whatever their reason may be. That's never been my intention, certainly not in my podcast and not even in my consumption of true crime. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. I love true crime documentaries. I want to know the stories of these people. Um, I get frustrated when it seems to be more focused on the perpetrator because, yes, they did horrible things, but the people who they harmed had a voice that was snuffed out. And that's so important to me that those voices are heard. And so when I am consuming true crime, I'm really trying to focus on like, okay, who is this victim here? What can we say about them? What would they have said about themselves? You know, what is their family saying about them? Um, And those things are really important to me as I am also creating in the true crime space. I certainly do not want anyone to think that I am profiting off of someone's pain or that I am trying to sensationalize. That's never my intention. Um, You know, as we've talked about, my podcast is fact-based. I try really hard not to editorialize or even speculate. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I can't help myself. Um, But I do feel like I need to at least share these stories You were recently on the I'm the Villain podcast, audience, it's I'm the Villain podcast, episode 139, and with the hosts, you were talking about true crime, why true crime, who listens to crime, and it, true crime, and it turns out that it's mostly women, and um, I thought you made a really good sort of self-analysis and makes sense, because I was like, why did I always love watching horror? You know, why did I want to prove to myself that nothing scared me? You know, why am I an emergency physician? And I do think there's this element of if we feel vulnerable, if we at all are marginalized and or vulnerable in society, in communities, in the world, then we want to figure out how to protect ourselves. We want to figure out, would I have figured that out? Would I have gone there? Would I would have walked into that dark alley? Would I have, would I have, would I have? You talked about walking, you know, we're taught to walk in a parking lot with our key between our fingers. Like all these ways to protect ourselves and to keep ourselves safe. And there's this element of um, morbid curiosity. How did that happen? Would I have, would that have happened to me? Could I have prevented that? Yes, it really is surprising in some ways how many people I know who love true crime. Um, Because, you know, for a long time it was like, okay, yeah, I like true crime, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. You know, people are going to think I'm a weirdo. Um, But then the more that you talk with people, the more you realize like, oh, they're also listening to that podcast or they also watch that documentary and that sort of thing. And in in a weird way, it has become a real community um, of people who want to talk about these cases and want to discuss, you know, in a, like you said, in a lot of ways, how we can protect ourselves, that sense of control. One of the things that came out of that podcast conversation was you talked about advocacy and accountability. And by talking about true crime, uh, researching true crime, bringing some of these cases to light, there's an opportunity to hold individuals 
to hold institutions accountable and to advocate for people, for communities. Yes, and I really do feel strongly about that. We've actually seen a few instances of that recently in the news with big high profile cases. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Serial podcast, which was one of the first big true crime podcasts. Um, but the Adnan Syed case was recently back in the news because he had his conviction vacated. Um, and it's the, it was the prosecutors who suggested that it be vacated because there were so many problems with his case. And it was a complete failure of our system in that we convicted an innocent young man. He was 17 years old, and he spent 23 years of his life behind bars because our system is flawed and things were covered up. And that kind of accountability is so, so, so important. We need that in order to keep our system as democratic as possible to keep the integrity of our justice system. Otherwise, it's just a free for all. You know, there are so many wrongfully convicted people behind bars. And there are also people who should be convicted who are walking free. You know, um, a recent case that I just happened to see on TV was of a young girl who was kidnapped and um, unfortunately killed. And her killer had gotten out of prison three days earlier on a, a, a charge that he should have been locked up for much longer. Um, and so that kind of accountability for our system is really, really important. To that end, when you and I had our pre-meet, I asked you if based on your episodes, you had ever led to cases being solved or, you know, being, people being held accountable? I wish I could say that I had that much power. <laughs> My hope is that someone will hear something that I have shared and it will trigger something in their memory, that it will hopefully lead to the recovery of a missing person or, you know, you just never know what information you may hold. And, you know, we talk in the true crime community a lot about being vigilant, being aware of your surroundings, not just for your own protection, but for others. You know, if you see a woman running down the street, you know, doing her evening jog, just clock her, you know, keep an eye out and just think, I don't know, and it could be paranoia in a sense, maybe too much true crime. But a lot of times I see someone out and about and I just want to just want to put that memory in, like, just in case, you know, I want to see like, yes, she's safe at this moment, like I've seen her um, and nothing may come of it. But then, you know, heaven forbid, someday down the road, something may happen to that young woman. And I might be able to say, yeah, I saw her running that day or whatever. You know, I am hopeful that through my podcast or through one of the many podcasts that I listen to that people are able to hear and it triggers something in their memory like, oh, I can help with that. N you know, we often say in the true crime community, no tip is too small. No piece of information is too insignificant. You just never know where it may lead. And I think that's kind of that puzzle, puzzle making that we like to do in the true crime community is putting those pieces together so that hopefully we could, you know, lead to the resolution of a case. You shared with me that you have a running list of cases that, you know, you decide which to prep. So 
it's Monday. Typically, you drop your episodes on Monday, and now would be around the time that you would start prepping for next week's episode. So can you give us an example of a case that you're going to do a deep dive research and prep for an upcoming week? Yes, actually. Um, I was going to drop an episode today, and I took a little bit of a, a personal vacation this week, went to New Orleans with my best friend, and had a wonderful time. And it cut into my research a little bit, which is a, a good reason. Um, but as I was kind of working on it this weekend, I thought it was going to be a really straightforward case. It's the case of Kiara Henry, who went missing in Hawaii. She went on a solo, solo, excuse me, she went on a solo vacation and just disappeared off the face of the earth. And I thought it was going to be really straightforward, a nice, simple one. Um, and the deeper I got, the more things I uncovered. And so I just said, you know what? It's late on Sunday. I'm a little bit tired from traveling. I want to put some more time into this. And so I'm putting it off till next week so that I can continue. But essentially, my structure for preparing for an episode is I keep a running list of cases. You know, sometimes someone will text me and say, hey, here's an article for a link for something. And I'll just say, I'll add it to my list. And then each week, I kind of go through and see if there's anything that jumps out at me. Um, There's a few cases that I really, really want to do, but they're right on the cusp of a trial or, you know, it just hasn't quite been resolved yet. So I'm like, if I give it another month or so, I might get more out of it. Um, But generally, I'll start by just compiling my list of articles, um, video links, anything that I can find. I will, I just keep a Google Doc just paste all my links in there, keep everything. And again, some have a lot and some don't have very many. Kiara's doesn't have very many um, yet. I'm hoping to find some more. Um, And then I will really dig into every single piece that I have. So I will read every single article. I will watch every video. Um, A lot of times, if I can find those police reports and things like that, I'll spend a good chunk of my time dissecting those. And I take extensive notes. I put everything in another Google Doc. I have multiple ongoing Google Docs for each episode. And then once I feel like I have enough information to at least get started, I'll just sit and write. I script all of my episodes, um, mostly because I tend to ramble. <laughs> and I want to make sure that I'm I'm accurately portraying the information. Um, and depending on the length of the episode, I might get six or seven pages of script out of it. Um, and then I t- I generally record on Sundays so that I can release on Monday. And I do all my own recording and editing and everything. I enjoy that part of the process. Um, it's just that, that nerdy side of me where I get to just sit and dissect the audio waves. <laughs> we have um, shared with the audience that many of your true crime episodes have had the victims who are women in. Uh, more so women of color, um, certainly uh, indigenous communities. Tell us about cases from the trans community, because I think this is a particular community that is victimized. Yes, you are exactly right. And unfortunately, those tend to be the cases that are so difficult to find information for, either because they're not reported or they're not reported accurately. I can't even tell you the amount of times I've come across a case. And it's hard to find the information because the either the police or the 
media is dead naming them and you're looking for one name and things are under a different name and it can get really convoluted that way. Um, and a lot of times, again, it's just not reported at all, which is so heartbreaking. And it relies a lot on the families to put that information out there. And like we said before, they don't always have those resources or those connections. And if the media feels like it's not going to get them enough views, then they may just not pick up the story. For audience members who may not be familiar, can you explain what dead naming is? Yes, that's a really good question. Dead naming essentially is when a trans person is referred to by the name that they previously used before their transition. Um, and so oftentimes when, especially if there is a victim who is trans, it can be difficult if you're searching for the name that they preferred to be called. You know, if there's a trans woman whose name is Sarah Smith, but previously her name may have been John Smith. You might be searching for Sarah Smith, but everything's listed under John Smith and it can get very confusing. Um, and so that can cause issues in, in reporting and in tracking these cases. And sometimes, again, they just don't get reported at all. Are there cases that have stayed with you longer than you would have expected or have kept you up at night? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, as far as cases that I've done, um, probably my very first episode, and I and I chose to do this case for my first episode because it was one that was so close to home. Um, there was a little girl in my town um, just a few years ago. Her name was Faye Swetlick, and she was just this little six-year-old baby angel. And she got off the school bus one day and went to go play in her front yard. And then she vanished. And unfortunately, she was taken by a neighbor who um, assaulted her and killed her. And she was found a few days later. Um, and I drive past her neighborhood on a regular basis. And I drive past the place where her body was found. And every time I do, I just, you know, I say a little prayer for her. I say, hi, Faye, I'm thinking about you. And you know, that may be overly sentimental, but it's one of those cases where, especially as as a teacher, as someone in education, like she was the age of my students. And I remember the public, just the public reaction, the outcry of pain. I remember her teacher getting on the news and talking about what a beautiful child she was and how special she was and thinking that could have been any one of my my kids at school. Um, and so that's the kind of case that really sticks with me that I try not to do a lot of children, children's cases, not for any reason other than they're really, really hard for me to do. They're really hard to research. I get really, really emotional, especially when they are, you know, the age of my students, because I just I see them and and it's just, it's the kind, like you said, it keeps you up at night. It, it sticks with you. And thankfully, her case was solved. They found her and, you know, her her killer was, you know, he, he took his own life, which is not always the resolution that you want. But there are so many, so many cases like that, that just niggle in the back of your brain, like, why can't this one be solved? Or where is that little child? Um, and that's the kind of thing that you just, you can't forget. It really makes an impact on you. And I shared with you, I grew up in a small town and we were made aware of kidnapping. You know, yes, at the back of our public school lunch milk that we bought, there was a face of missing children. So I definitively recall being afraid of being kidnapped. 
Yeah, that's exactly my experience as well. Um, you know, the older generations, I think Gen Z doesn't quite have as much of that as we do, but we were very much taught the stranger danger. You know, you've got to watch out. There's always somebody coming to get you. It was a very like boogeyman kind of mentality, whether, whether right or wrong. That's just kind of what we experienced. And, you know, I very much remember that face on the milk carton and, thinking, oh, gosh, that could be me. You know, I better better make sure I don't get kidnapped. And I think somehow that's translated into adulthood. <laughs> um, but yeah. And the reality, though, is you, you stranger danger. The reality is most of these crimes are committed by intimates, intimate partners. Somehow there's a connection to the victim. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. The majority of cases, I, I don't have a percentage, but it's incredibly high. The majority of these cases are perpetrated by someone who is close to the victim. Um, when it's women, it tends to be an intimate partner, a spouse, a boyfriend, or, you know, whoever. Um, when it's children, it tends to be a family member or a close neighbor, close family friend. Um, it's very rarely the stranger danger that we were all afraid of. Um, now, of course, it does happen, of course. But, and those tend to be the ones that make the news, you know, the the serial killer, the the child napper who's coming and taking your children away. Those are the ones that that get the big attention. But unfortunately, a lot of times it's much closer to home. So I ask my guests, when did you first realize you had a voice and when did you start using that voice? Oh, gosh, that's a deep question. I have to think about that for a second. Oh, man. Hmm. I feel like I've always had a voice. Um, I'm sure my mother would tell you that I've been using my voice for a very long time. Um, but I also think in a lot of ways, it took me until my adulthood to really find my voice. You know, I was always, I was a people pleaser. I was, I was the good girl, you know, the teacher's pet. I was that typical child. And I, I certainly had a voice, but I don't ever, I don't know if I ever really used it for my own benefit. It was very much always focused on others, which is not a bad thing at all. Um, but the older I got, especially once I really got into like my 30s and started to realize, oh, I can actually advocate for myself in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I can, I can share my opinion and I don't have to necessarily be so worried about what other people think of my opinion. I'm allowed to have my own thoughts and my own voice. Um, and I think that it's helped me in my personal life. It's helped me professionally just be able to advocate for myself at work, to be able to advocate for myself just in my personal life. And, and I think it's really important to me to also help my students find their voices, even though they're young. I have elementary age students. I think if I had really known what my voice was capable of when I was their age, I can't even imagine what I would be doing now. <laughs> Lord knows I'd be talking even more than I already do. The Risa Wrap-Up. What a joy to speak with Joy. I have a lot of respect for how deep her research is and how sincere her intention is regarding true crime. When I first approached Joy, it was partially because I really like the Boundless Audio Network that her podcast is a part of. I also like the topic and I like learning. I hadn't considered myself a true crime person. But then, way back, I've always loved 
Edgar Allan Poe. I've always loved watching Vincent Price. I really got into reading In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And I did watch some of the media attention, uh, O.J. Simpson, John Benet Ramsey, and the Menendez brothers. I realize this doesn't all register as true crime, but for me, it registers in that category of trauma, traumatic, exposure, and trying to create a safe world and wanting the world to be safer. That's it for this week, audience. Speak to you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.